Hello, and welcome to episode two of That Creative Industries podcast about the global creative industries and the people behind them. In this episode, I chat with Aram Sinrak about his book, The Piracy Crusade, how the music industry's war on sharing destroys markets and erodes civil liberties. I started by asking Aram what he does. I'm a, uh, an academic primarily. I am the head of communication studies at American University. I write books uh, that generally focus on something to do with um, culture, technology, and law, oftentimes music specifically. Um, I'm a, a working musician. Uh, I have been since I was a teenager. I have a, a background in, um, in the private sector. I was for many years uh, a, um, an internet industry analyst and consultant. I worked in uh, the marketing industry for a while. I was a director of uh, marketing innovation at a, at a media agency. Um, but primarily, I'm just somebody who is endlessly fascinated by the multifaceted relationship between culture and law and technology. Very cool. Uh, so I got in contact with you about a book you wrote called The Piracy Crusade, How the Music Industry's War on Sharing Destroys Markets and Erodes Civil Liberties. Um, so they're, they're definitely fighting words, uh, and I'm really interested in, in unpacking uh, what you mean and, and what's going on. But let's start with the background and the kind of history to, I guess, the current copyright regime. Uh, so could, could you walk us through like what copyright is and, and how we kind of got here? Sure. Um, it's a very long story and a very interesting one, but I'll give you as short a version as I can. Um, basically, uh, there, there was no such thing as copyright or intellectual property for most of human history and for most of legal history. Um, around, um, you know, after the, the, um, the Italian Renaissance and the invention of the printing press in, uh, in Europe, um, you know, at the, at the beginning of the modern era, uh, there were basically two new ideas that led to the creation of copyright. One was the, the idea that, um, that works of art and, uh, and discoveries came from individual people rather than just being kind of either divinely or collectively developed. And the other was the notion that culture is something that you could turn into a commodity by mass producing it, initially through the printing press, but obviously today through many other technologies. And those two uh, ideas in combination essentially led to the development of this law called copyright, which gives one individual or one company the exclusive monopoly power over the distribution of, uh, of the expression of an idea uh, for a limited period of time. And that period of time in the American context has expanded from 14 years uh, when our first copyright law was written in 1790 to uh, the lifetime of an author plus an additional 70 years, which is where it stands now. Um, during the intervening period, copyright has come to cover a lot of things that it didn't used to cover. It used to only be books, maps, and charts. And now it covers basically every conceivable work of creative expression in any tangible medium. Uh, and um, everything that is expressed becomes copyrighted at the moment of creation. So if you uh, leave a voicemail on somebody's uh, voicemail box, or if you write an email or a tweet or a text, uh, if you draw a doodle on a napkin at a restaurant, um, all of those things are immediately copyrighted. And the, uh, the right to distribute them or adapt them or copy them or publicly air them is exclusively yours for your entire lifetime uh, and belongs to your estate for another 70 years after you die. Right, okay. And is, is, it, is it true that these have been extended principally at the behest of uh, Disney's uh, uh, kind of uh, needs and, and their, their lobbying? Yeah, and it, it is true. In recent decades, it's true at least. So um, the, the very first Mickey Mouse cartoon, which was known as Steamboat Willie, was set to enter the public domain. Uh, in the year 2003. That is to say, it would have belonged to everybody and, and nobody would have had to ask for Disney's permission in order to, to copy or distribute or adapt um, the cartoon or the image of Mickey Mouse in the cartoon. And 
Disney was once one of the principal lobbyists in favor of extending copyright by 20 years um, back in 1998, which was successful. There was a, a law called the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998, um, and that, that pushed it from an author's life plus 50 years to an author's life plus 70 years. And of course, uh, Mickey Mouse is now um, destined to re-enter the public domain um, in a in a couple of years in 2023 unless uh disney and its its fellow um copyright uh titans successfully lobby to further extend the law before then okay and the second thing i wanted i wanted to to bring up just because i hear it all the time and it drives me insane uh you have a creator has copyright when they create a, a the, the 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 text the, the 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 creation it doesn't need to be registered anywhere they don't need to send it to a lawyer or anything like that they don't need to put a c in the corner that's how copyright works correct correct so for most of copyright history uh you did have to register copyright in, or, in order to enjoy it and, and in fact you would have to maintain that copyright the same way that we do now with patents if you want a patent in the u.s and in most other uh nations you have to file with the patent office uh give them a copy of of documentation and il illustrations showing what makes your particular patent useful and novel and and unique um and then every uh, couple of years you have to give them a little more money to make sure that the patent remains protected for its full term of 20 years um, copyright used to work that way, and then there was a massive revision to the law in the United States in 1976 that uh, not only extended the length of copyright considerably from, I think it was a 56-year term at that time, to an author's life plus 50 years, but it also changed the method whereby things become copyrighted. Uh, so it went from the presumption that you had to register to the presumption that everything is copyrighted automatically as soon as it's in a fixed, tangible medium. Which meant, of course, that we went overnight uh, in January of 1978 when the law took effect in the U.S., we went from a situation where 99.9% .9 of all creative expression was not copyrighted and thus belonged in the public domain to one in which 99.99999% of creative expression was copyrighted and was in private hands. Let's talk about uh, copyright in different contexts uh, around around the world, because obviously things uh, work a little bit differently in uh, in Beijing than they do in in America. How is Washington able to roll their vision of copyright um, internationally? The short version is that on the one hand, laws tend to reflect the values and biases of the nations in which they are created. And so there are some ways in which American copyright law really differs from copyright in other nations. For instance, uh, in America, copyright is, uh, is fundamentally transactional and incentive building. That is to say, a copyright can be given or traded or sold in full from one party to another. And the only reason that copyright exists, according to the U.S. Constitution, is to give a financial incentive for creators to share their work. In European nations, by contrast, there is a, uh, an underlying dimension of copyright called uh, an author's right or a moral right. And that is a much more mystical um, concept that holds that there is a, an unseverable bond with legal ramifications between an author and their work. And that therefore it can never, the ownership can never fully be transferred from one party to another um, and there are all manner of uh, <clears throat> extra legal dimensions uh, that get taken into account when thinking about the, what, the, what the role of the author vis-a-vis -vis the lifetime of the work should be. Okay, so that, that's kind of on the differences side. On the other side, there is a global effort uh, as you accurately point out, backed by the United States and, and largely U.S.-based content companies, to do what's called harmonize uh, the copyright laws around the globe, to bring them closer and closer to one another in ways that make it easier to police uh, and enforce the laws across national boundaries, especially now that we have a global uh, instantaneous digital media infrastructure. 
Um, those harmonization efforts uh, really started in the mid-1990s with the, with the passage of something called TRIPS, the Trade-Related uh, Aspects of International Property. Uh, sorry, the Trade-Related Aspects of uh, Intellectual Properties. Um, rights. That's what the S is for, is at the end okay. of rights. Of course. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. And the story of TRIPS is really interesting, actually. Um, it was not primarily uh, uh, an American government initiative. It was actually paid for the lobbying and uh, the successful organization and passage of the treaty were essentially paid for by 12 um, internet, uh, intellectual property-centric corporations. And coordination was not done through, for instance, the U.S. trade representative, but rather person to person between the chief executive officers of these 12 companies. So this was essentially a case where 12 very powerful, very wealthy individuals representing 12 very powerful, very wealthy commercial interests successfully bypassed um, representative democracy to create law that would that would severely limit the expressive rights of billions of citizens around the globe. There's a great book on the subject by a law professor named Susan K. Sell, if you ever want to read it, where she gets into the, the gory detail about where TRIPS came from and, and who was behind it and how it got lobbied and how, how, uh, how it was eventually turned into binding law within all the signatory nations. and. In, this is the 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 mid nineties you said. This or, is the mid nineteen nineties. Yeah. Right. The mid nineties. So which which are these companies? Uh, just just sort of roughly. It's it's principally the music industry. It was a combination of con of basically Hollywood, uh, pharmaceutical, and tech. Right, and that's that's an important detail here: the pharmaceutical and tech, because uh, there is a relationship between, you know, creative or, or, or cultural intellectual property right, property right, and more industrial or technical, like pharmaceuticals, for example. Right. So pharmaceuticals are primarily, and tech are primarily driven by patents rather than copyrights, and uh, and of course all 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 the different sectors rely on trademark as we talked about in the case of Mickey Mouse, right? Um, it's, it, they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, one, you know, if you look at something like the Google search engine, um, that's protected by copyright, patent, and trademark simultaneously for different aspects of the same set of code, essentially. Um, so, yeah, so the, there have been a lot of critiques of, of harmonization, uh, one of which, of course, is that is that harmonization, uh, contrary to the, the metaphor of musical harmony, it's not everybody finding a kind of common, a point of commonality. It's, a, it's really a ratcheting up of the world to, to you know, the highest level of any participant, right? So, so uh, TRIPS and its successors, what's known as the TRIPS plus trade regime, um, requires that uh, countries enter into uh, into these treaties that 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 um, expands the powers of rights holders under their laws, never never diminish the power of rights holders, um, and diminish the power of uh, of publics, never expand the power of publics, and they do so in a way that um, that essentially serves to funnel wealth out of most signatory countries and into the pockets of a handful of countries. For instance, um, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies based in Switzerland will get money from uh, from uh, consumers in in Ghana or in Venezuela, but um, but there are no Ghanaian or Venezuelan pharmaceutical companies selling their wares to Swiss nationals, right? The same goes for Hollywood. We export a lot of films and, and, and music and video games around the world, but we don't import many from, from most of the other signatory nations. Um, the other thing that it does, and this is a really important thing to understand, is that for the first time in history, um, TRIPS and 
the creation of the World Trade Organization and the World Intellectual Property Organization around the same moment in time in the mid 1990s created a, a global trade regime where um, intellectual property became intimately bound with other trade issues including trade in agriculture, trade in uh, arms, uh, financial regulation, and, and many other factors. So essentially, if you want to trade with any wealthy nation, if you want to find a market for your goods, if you want to get access to the goods manufactured there, you have to sign on to a whole raft of treaties, including the intellectual property harmonization treaties, which are measurably bad for your country. Um, but if you don't sign, then you won't be able to do any trade at all. It's, it's all in or nothing. Those are the only two choices. And if you, once you sign, if you uh, are found to be um, in violation of, of any aspect of the treaty, say you're not adequately enforcing um, copyright uh, uh, infringement, right? Um, then you can essentially be put on a most wanted list for rogue nations and your economy can be destroyed literally overnight. And um, through the U.S. Trade Representative, Hollywood has threatened several countries, uh, several allies, with economic devastation if they don't sign laws that, uh, that Hollywood wants them to sign, despite widespread opposition among the voting publics in those nations. Some of this stuff, most of this stuff is transacted very secretly, but some of it, uh, for instance, was leaked uh, in that raft of diplomatic cables that Chelsea Manning made available a few years back. Interesting. And we've definitely um, sort of, I think, breached the territory of, of your book, The, the, the Piracy Crusade. Um, just so, so before, we, before we get into that, um, more completely, uh, there might be people listening or reading who are a little bit younger than, than you or I and don't really remember the emergence of, uh, of Napster and peer-to-peer -peer sharing and, and what that kind of meant uh, for consumers, for creators, and, and, and for the industry. Um, but I remember there was kind of a, a, a brief window, pretty much my entire high school era, where music became free. <laughs> And, and copious and, and it was all sort of it was all uh, transmitted via bringing your computer to a friend's house um, so what, what did what did that sort of early 2000s late late 90s um, period mean for for the uh, the copyright uh, and and piracy issue and basically digitization well that's another huge question with a lot of different answers um, <clears throat> The development of Napster really did signal, signal a radical break uh, for the balance of power between consumers and industries and artists um, and was really the first moment that the, the paradigmatic shift created by the internet for media industries became widely apparent. Um, but that being said, it was really yet historically part of a long process of push and pull between the different stakeholders involved in the creation of culture. Um, you have to remember that, you know, a generation earlier, the development of, uh, of VCRs and, and cable television had a very similar effect on existing mass media industries. And, you know, in, in the U.S., there was a Supreme Court case about whether um, it was legal for companies like Sony to manufacture VCRs and whether it was legal for consumers to use them. And ultimately, the Supreme Court said uh, in a case called um, Sony versus Universal in 1984, I think, um, they said, yes, uh, as long as there are substantial non-infringing uses for VCR, um, then it's legal for a technology company to manufacture them. And consumers, moreover, have a right to take the television that's broadcasting over the airwaves and to save it to their personal libraries, to watch it at a different time than it airs on television, to watch it in a different place than where they recorded it. These things are called librarying, time shifting, and, and space shifting. Um, and, and the Supreme Court of the U.S. said, you know, th these are fair uses. It's within the citizens' rights to, to exercise those fair uses. And, you know, they're, they're additive. They're not, they're not replacing. So 
that was the law of the land for 15 years in the U.S. It was, it was widely understood by media and technology industries that, that consumers had these rights and that technology manufacturers had these rights. So that was the situation in which Napster was, was first introduced. Now, before Napster, um, there was a lot of hand-wringing in the music industry. They were, I was already working as an as a internet industry analyst at the time, and you know the record labels and movie studios were my clients. It was my job to help explain to them how the, you know, the internet was going to change their business. So even as late as spring of 1999, uh, you know, the, the Recording Industry Association of America published a report saying that by their estimate, there were half a million MP3s on the internet. And MP3 at the time was viewed as the devil. Uh, there was a, 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 an upstart MP3 company called uh, MP3.com, uh, which had a lot of different business models over the years, but the primary one was that people could upload MP3s and then other people could download them. And that was the primary way that music was shared over the internet at the time, was somebody uploading an mp3 to a website, somebody else downloading it. Um, there was also, uh, in the consumer electronics uh, uh, sector, there was the beginnings of what would eventually become the iPod. There was, there was the, uh, the first mp3 player was something called the Diamond Rio. And the recording industry sued Diamond and actually said, you know, they wanted to get a ruling that said that it was illegal for uh, to manufacture an MP3 player, and fortunately for everybody in the world, they lost. The, and this this was because uh, the MP3 format was sort of associated with 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 piracy, because uh, music companies would only release you know say CDs, uh, and so if you had MP3s, there was they 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 could only be illegitimate. Is that kind of the the, the reasoning behind that? Uh, no, so you're you're making what is a completely reasonable but false assumption <laughs> that that legal claims have some kind of intellectual coherence or merit behind them. <laughs> okay. um, that's not the case. Um, yeah, I mean, they, essentially, what they were saying was that was that it, um, the hardware, an MP3 player, was abetting piracy. But of course, this was an industry that had spent the last twenty years aggressively promoting an unsecured digital distribution format called the CD, right? And beginning in 1995, you know, millions of American households had personal computers with CD-ROM drives in them. So, so the music industry was actively, like, had re-envisioned itself completely around this format that, you know, presented music as data that could be moved legally and easily off of off of a disk and onto a hard drive. So it was a ludicrous claim that a digital version of the file was piratical when we had the Betamax decision and we had widely proliferated legal CD-ROM drives and widely proliferated optical media produced by the media industries themselves. Uh, you know, like there was there was no part of the puzzle that was illegal. It was all very straightforward, and and you know there was essentially no difference from you know the court's standpoint between somebody you know making a backup copy of of a program that aired on television using a VCR and somebody making a backup copy of uh, a song that was distributed via CD using the the optical drive in their computer. I mean, it's the same thing. You're just moving media that you have legal access to from one place to another to make it easier for you to use it, right? And MP3 players were a part of that process. Uh, they also, I don't remember whether they sued or threatened a lawsuit against Apple, but they lost that. They ended up backing down off of that one way or another, too. And of course, you know, when, when the iPod launched, you know, I think it was like rip mix burn or something like that was was their their official tagline right they were they were promoting the technology as here's a way to to make your cd collection more useful right rip it to your hard drive and move it onto your ipod was the uh, apple store launched simultaneous with the ipod or no. when it launched no, no. with the right the ipod came out in i think november 2001 maybe 
And the Apple Store launched, the iTunes Store launched in, I think, 2003. So at, at, the, t at the time that the iPod launched, the only legal way to fill it up was by ripping your CD collection. Now remember that the other tagline for the iPod was a thousand songs in your pocket, right? That was it. That, that's what it said in that beautiful serif font on those, you know, on those billboards all around the country, probably all around the world. A thousand songs in your pocket. That sounded radical at the time, and it was. Um, but of course, when the iTunes Music Store launched in 2003 at 99 cents a song, the logical conclusion is that if you were to fill, fill up your iPod using legally purchased music from the iTunes store, it would cost you $1,000, right? Which is like four times the price of the iPod itself. So, um, so there were some, some and a, as many of us in the industry pointed out at the time, there were some, um, you know, there was, there was some, some disproportionate uh, economics between different aspects of the industry. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, so when so when you were asking me about Napster, right? So Napster comes out, and it changes everybody's understanding of what how the internet uh, could be used to distribute content, right? Um, half a million MP3s being posted onto websites and downloaded was a minor nuisance from the point of view of the music industry. Months later, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of users were, were exchanging billions of MP3s over the internet on a daily basis because of Napster. So the person-to-person the, the -person or peer-to-peer -peer trade in music files grew by orders of magnitude in the course of a couple of months. And, you know, the, the, the fundamental premise, which was that, was that, you know, the, the distinction between distributing and receiving music had been erased, right? Peer-to-peer -peer file sharing was both at the same time. It was really a paradigm shift in terms of understanding how, um, how the business of media could operate. So I had this hunch at the time, which was that, you know, based on my own personal experience, which is that Napster was probably actually a good thing for the music industry in terms of spurring people's interest in music. I mean, I was, I was finding out about all kinds of great music that wasn't being played on the radio, wasn't on, MP th on, uh, on MTV, um, that you know, even my friends hadn't told me about. Because one of the wonderful things about Napster, and this is, this is not widely remembered for some reason, I don't know why, it was social media. The way that you would use Napster was there was a, essentially a search engine where you'd say, I want a song by such and such an artist. And then you'd find other users who had that song in their collection. But then if you like, you could browse that other user's collection. And if you liked their collection, you could add them to your buddy list, the same way that you would on an instant messenger platform. And so it was fundamentally social in that you weren't just finding songs, you were finding community. Right, which led to a lot of music discovery, the same way that it does now on Spotify or on Apple Music, or on YouTube, for that matter, or on Mixcloud or SoundCloud. SoundCloud is probably actually the best analogy. Yeah, I was I was trying to think if there's I, I don't use SoundCloud, but would that be the closest? Because um, the d discovery in Spotify is mostly algorithmic. I can kind of watch what my what my friends from Facebook are listening to right now, but I don't really look at their collection. Yeah, um, Spotify when they initially announced the Facebook integration back in 2011, it was that was going to be a big selling point, but they kind of backed off it. I'm not sure why. You'd have to ask them. But yeah, SoundCloud and MixCloud, I, I mean, MixCloud is, after Spotify, probably, you know, it's my, my top um, uh, source of music that I actively listen to. And the reason I listen to MixCloud is because it's always discovery. You know, people are posting things. I follow, I don't know, a couple dozen people on MixCloud, and, and whenever they post a new mix, I'll listen to it, and frequently... When I hear that mix, I'll Shazam a song on it to find out what that song is, and then I'll add it to my Spotify playlist and generate revenue. Right? That's that's the ecosystem today. Twenty years ago, it was all it was exactly the same. Only it was all encapsulated within this free, non-commercial piece of software called Napster. 
right? So you would you would search on Napster, you'd find a song, you'd see who who was sharing it, you'd check out their collection. If you like their collection, you would add them to your buddy list, and then you discover lots and lots of new music. So I had you know a budget at the time to to field these massive surveys where I could ask consumers all kinds of questions. And I, I did one every year about music on the internet, and you know that year that Napster came out, you know fall of 1999 or whatever, I fielded a survey and I said, you know, have you used this thing called Napster in the past year? And then I ask a bunch of other questions, and then at some point I ask, you know, in the past year has the amount of money you've spent on music increased or decreased or stayed the same? And there was no way for consumers to know that I was looking for a relationship between those two things because I was asking like 50 different questions, right? Those just happened to be two of them. Well, when I did a regression analysis between those two questions, which is essentially a statistical mark of causality, what I found was this. There were a group of people who were using file sharing uh, that were buying less than they had a, the previous year. But there were a lot more people who were using file sharing that, had, that were buying more than they had the previous year. And of course, the largest group were the people who had not changed their music consumption habits at all. They were using Napster, and they were still buying exactly the same amount of music that they had the previous year. But all in all, when you looked at it, if you controlled for everything else, age and income and region and all the things that all the demographics that we measured, if you look at two identical people, person A is not using Napster, person B is using Napster. Otherwise, they're identical. Person B is 45% more likely to have increased the amount of money they spent on music last year than person A. 45% more likely to increase because, just because of using Napster, everything else aside. Right? So I ran to the music industry clients that I had, all the record labels and um, you know, retailers and I said, and publishers, and I said, you know, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. Somebody invented a new technology that's totally free that everyone's using that is the single greatest factor leading to an increase in music purchasing that we can find anywhere in the data. So you guys should get on this. Use it for distribution, use it for marketing, partner with them, advertise through them, promote through them. Right, and my clients in the music industry basically told me that I was a liar. They put out a press release saying that my that my research was was um, was fake. They commissioned research to argue against mine, where they where they distributed a survey that essentially said, "Since you started stealing music, have you been buying less music? Yes or no?" And of course. If you ask people that way, they're going to be like, yeah, of course, since I started stealing music, I've been buying less music, right? And then they use that as evidence that my research was bullshit. I was lambasted publicly at events and in the press. Um, the, many of the uh, record labels, including the RIAA, ceased to be my clients, pulled, pulled their, um, their support for my research and, and, uh, and severed their relationship with my research firm. Um, and it, you know, like it, it hit me like a punch in the gut. I, I was, I was young. I was like 27 at the time, you know? And, uh, you know, I was, I was really excited that I was like, I had discovered this amazing thing in this industry that I loved. I was already a, a professional musician. Um, you know, I, I thought the record labels were the coolest guys in the world. And all I wanted to do was to kind of, you know, help them progress into the 21st century. And, uh, and when, they, when they went out of their way, not only to demonize me, but to, um, to reject empirical evidence about something that could help their business, I got very confused. And I tried for a few years. I kind of turned into like an internet bad boy for a few years. You know, like, I, I mean, I was, like, I was cast in that role. It wasn't something I took on, but it was, it was interesting, kind of like being this prominent, you know, all of a sudden you know, dissident, radical voice inside of the music industry. Um, and, you know, I tried for a few years, like every, you know, every year I'd, I'd do more surveys. I'd, I'd have the same findings. I, I eventually, I think in 2002, did some work that found that CD burners had the same effect, that CD burners, like, like file sharing, was actually increasing people's uh, 
propensity to, to purchase music? Uh, so we've, I think we've definitely come across a sort of uh, a, a premise of the book here, which is uh, in the in the title that the the war on sharing destroys destroys markets. So it seems to be the case that the music industry lost a bunch of money around around you know with with the turn to digitization. Um, th- th- that's certainly the the sort of um, popular story, you know. That, there's, that is there's no, the popular there's no, story. There's no money in music anymore. So, are, are you saying there's one or, one or two things you could be saying? One is that that isn't the case that that there was a downturn in in um you know kind of music revenue, or that it was the case, but it wasn't the it was that a free sharing wasn't the cause of that. It's twenty percent the first, eighty percent the second. Right. So, so there is a downturn. There is a downturn, but the downturn actually preceded Napster by a couple of years. So, the way that we know how much the music industry makes is largely through self-reporting by record labels who who report to the RIAA and the IFPI, which is the international consortium. Um, how, you know how much music they've shipped to stores in a given month or year. And also by third-party services that essentially measure at a sample of different stores what's being purchased. So the RIAA publishes every year some uh, industry statistical reports saying this is how much music has been bought, here's who's buying it, here are the styles of music that are being bought, here are the formats in which people are buying it, etc., etc. Up until the early 2000s, the figures that they published showed a peak around 1994 and 1995, followed by a little bit of a downturn, then a little bit of an upturn, and then a downturn. <clears throat> with, the, with 1999 and 2000 not rising to the level of the mid-1990s. Starting around the time that they started suing their own customers, which is like 2003, 2004, and, started a, and around that time they also started a major, well-funded public awareness campaign about the dangers of digital distribution. This is all very much on the record and I documented it in, in the Piracy Crusade. They began to retroactively change their sales figures. Here's how they did it. Up until the mid-2000s, when they analyzed the global marketplace for music, of course the music is being bought in dozens of different currencies, right? It's, it's in yen, or it's in euros, or it's in dollars, right? When the historical numbers showed a peak in the mid-1990s, they were using a standard of converting the local currency to dollars in the calendar year when the purchase was made, which makes sense because that's the year in which the currency turned into dollars, right? So you buy, you know, something for um, 300 yen, right? It's going to be, you know, I don't know, a couple dollars, right? Uh, and then it goes into the ledger as that many dollars that year based on that year's conversion rate. What they started doing in the mid-2000s was when they reported historical data, they would use the current year, 2005 or whatever, as the basis for all retroactive currency conversions. Which doesn't make any sense, because a purchase made in 1995 is not turned into dollars in 2005. Right? So there's no rational, there's no business reason to change that practice. The only reason that they did it was because it changed the curve over time to accord with their claims about the deleterious effects of Napster showing a peak in 1999 and 2000 instead of 1994 and 1995. Hmm. So there's a substantial, at least in the American context, a substantial amount is that, of that is sort of, um, it's sort of uh, spin as 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 part of the uh, copyright holders' um, claims that uh, online sharing is bad for the industry. It's right. It's revisionist business history. Yeah. 
Right. Okay. And 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 but the the other eighty percent was was an actual downturn, which is caused by what, if not um, di- digitization? Great question. Okay. So in re- in reality, whether the peak came in the mid nineteen nineties or the late nineteen nineties, um, the real you know <clears throat> the amount of money paid by consumers to the industry for music diminished for about a decade. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, some of which have to do with the internet, but not all of them, and most of them have very little to do with file sharing. Here are some of the reasons. First of all, the downturn came after the longest upturn in the history of the music industry. Um, The 1980s and 1990s, the value of the recorded music industry grew by hundreds of percent. And the primary reason for that was the shift from LPs and cassettes to CDs. Part of it is what's known as the replacement cycle, right? Um, when, you know, if you already owned the Beatles on, on LP or on cassette, uh, you were going to buy the Beatles again on CD so that you could listen to them on your brand spanking new stereo and, and in your car, right? So a lot of people were buying music they already owned, which only happens for the first few years in a replacement cycle, which is why they have had a historical process of trying to create new formats every decade or so, right? Is to juice the numbers by increasing demand above and beyond what what the demand for actual new music uh, would would normally call for. Um, There was also an unprecedented growth in, in the United States in household income. Uh, between 1991 and 2001, America had its longest period of economic expansion in history. So the amount of disposable income that people had uh, was much higher during that period than it was during previous or subsequent periods, right? There were two really bad recessions during the 2000s, and household income dropped precipitously, especially expendable income, right? Not to mention that it had to compete with cell phones and uh, you know, uh, Netflix and all these kinds of new, and ISPs, these new categories of expenditures that hadn't really existed during the 1990s. Um, so you have this kind of like massive bubble that's been blowing up and blowing up and blowing up through the 1990s, driven by the expansion of the economy and the success of this new format, which retailed at a much higher price than the formats that it replaced, right? I mean, the CD... CD cost, you know, 15 to $20, and LP cost 8 to $10, right? So, um, so then a bunch of things happen around the turn of the century that are, that are all interrelated but, but need to be parsed out. Um, one thing that happens is that the CD replacement cycle ends, and Warner Music, which was a public company at the time, said this in their annual reports. They said, we're seeing a downturn because people aren't buying replace- CDs to replace their existing music collections anymore. Like, they, they said that to their share, they acknowledged that to their shareholders, that that was one of the primary reasons that they were seeing less revenue. Um, then, of course, there's the two recessions, as I mentioned, and the drop in, in, uh, in disposable income for, a lot, for most American households. Um, but some other really important things happen as well. So... There's a, a real shift in the way that music is sold in terms of, of the retail infrastructure. Um, for most of American musical music industry history, record stores were essentially independent and small local chains. Um, and what happens is in the 1980s and 90s, um, there's this kind of growth of these super chains. Uh, Tower Records, HMV, Sam Goody. Um, and these super chains kind of build on a, uh, uh, a unified distribution infrastructure in order to, um, to nationalize the marketplace. So there's much less variation between stores, but also record labels can do, like make one purchase and do end cap promotion in store from coast to coast. Right, which kind of creates a widening gulf between the top hits and the rest of the catalog. It, it exaggerates the, the winner-takes-all effect. Exactly. Um, then, once that infrastructure is built, big-box retailers swoop in and 
leverage that same nationalized infrastructure to use recorded music as a loss leader. So whereas Tower Records or HMV has to charge a, a, a retail margin for those CDs that they're buying at $10.50, $11 a pop, um, Best Buy and Circuit City don't have to do that because they can actually charge below wholesale in order to get people in the door and then sell them high price, high margin items like televisions and hi-fis. So that's exactly what they start to do. In the late 1990s, you begin to see the big box retailers um, having these 9.99 CD sales. That's under wholesale price. So they're underselling the HMVs and the towers of the world. Now the record labels get really spooked. This is in the mid-1990s. And they go to the, to the, you know, to the Walmarts and the, the, tower, the, the Best Buys of the world, and they say, you guys can't do this. And by the way, Walmart was the number one seller of music in America at the turn of the century, until iTunes came along. Okay, so I just want to make clear how important these big boxes are. Walmart was the number one music retailer in America, despite carrying only a couple dozen titles in the year 2000, okay, at the peak of the music industry, according to their revisionist history, right? Okay, so what happens is the record labels start to freak out that they're, that even though they're selling the music at the same wholesale price, right, the retail price is plummeting, which is plummeting the perceived value of the marketplace, right, which they're worried they're not going to be able to recover from. So what they do is they start this thing called minimum advertised pricing, which is basically they go to the big box retailers and they say, you know, Walmart, Best Buy, if you promise not to undersell wholesale prices on the CDs, we will give you money to market the CDs. So we will go into cooperative advertising agreements with you and pay for part of your marketing for your stores in exchange for you agreeing to have a minimum advertised price for the CD, no more 9.99 CD sales. And they went for it. And that lasted for a couple of years until they were investigated and, uh, and sued by state's attorney general in something like 41 U.S. states for defrauding, for basically uh, colluding and defrauding customers. And what they found was that they had defrauded American music consumers out of something like half a billion dollars through this artificial, for, through this price fixing scheme called minimum advertised pricing. That price fixing scheme ended in the year 2000, whereupon the big box retailers immediately went back to their fire sale price, like sub wholesale pricing in the year 2000, okay? So flash forward six years, 2006, 2007, not only have the HMVs and Tower Records and Sam Goodies of the world been undersold by Walmart and Best Buy, but there's a real estate boom and the price of square footage in a retail environment goes up by hundreds of percent. So a store like Best Buy that's using CDs as a loss leader can afford to absorb that extra cost at selling below wholesale price on massively uh, um, increased uh, square footage costs uh, for the real estate, but a Tower Records or HMV can't. All of a sudden, they're making, they're making a negative margin and paying paying hundreds of percent more for the, for the privilege of doing it than they previously did. And they have no other product categories to expand into. So they all go out of business. They all close their doors. So now you have a situation where HMV closes, Tower Records closes, Sam Goody closes. The number one retailer, Walmart, uh, only carries a couple dozen titles. Where is everybody going to get their music unless they just want to listen to Christina Aguilera over and over again? Right? The answer is the internet. The, the, the idea there is that the, um, the, the mom and pop music stores have been put out of business by, by chains. 
And then there's a principally, uh, well, a combination, I guess, of a, a retail space uh, boom, which increases the cost of, of, of having a store, and competition with uh, loss leaders like Walmart. And it's those things, more than piracy, which puts uh, Tower Records out of uh, the retail business. That's correct. So the next step is everybody goes online. Now, some of that is Amazon. And Amazon has a thriving trade in CDs, right? Um, and they're able to essentially sell it at wholesale price also because for the same reasons that, that Best Buy can. But they're starting to undersell Best Buy, right? Um, and they have, of course, much more product variety. So Best Buy and Walmart move away from CDs as a loss leader and start using DVDs and video games instead which means that CDs are available in many, 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 many fewer brick-and-mortar locations than they were 10 years earlier, right? Which accelerates the move online. Now, it's at this point in time, 2003, that iTunes opens up shop, and iTunes is not selling albums. They're selling singles at 99 cents a pop. Now, your average pop album, which costs $10, $15, has only two or three songs on it that the average consumer wants to listen to. The rest is called, in the music industry, filler. That's a term of art used in the music industry since the dawn of the LP to describe the music that nobody wants but everybody pays for. Okay, So now the filler has been decoupled from the hits and when people move online to buy their music and they're going to the iTunes store because they bought that fa they got that fancy new iPod for Christmas instead of spending 9.99 on a CD they're spending 2.97 on the three hits from the CD right so there's the um the un unbundling effect um which is related to digitization but not to piracy precisely that's right so <laughs> So it's this kind of endless death spiral um, that, that happens where um, the, the, the market falls out entirely from album sales for all kinds of reasons that have to do with real estate prices, unbundling, the end of a price-fixing scheme, the transformation of, uh, of the retail experience for consumers, none of which has anything to do with file, sh file sharing per se. Now, again, I have data going back quite a ways. Do some people use file sharing as a way not to pay for music? Of course they do. Who is it? It's disproportionately people who have more time and computer savvy than they have money in their wallets, a.k.a. young people, right? Um, older people are actually paying more and more for music. Like, look at Sirius XM. That's a, that is, I mean... I can't conceive of paying for SiriusXM, and I'm already middle-aged. I'm 46. It's like SiriusXM just bought Pandora. They're so huge, right? Uh, because, because people are paying, like, what does it cost, $12 a month or something like that just to be able to listen to, like, Jimmy Buffett hits, like, on a dedicated radio station? It's crazy. But, like, the, the demand is there, right? So this is another story of what's happening at the same time. Even as retail revenues are dropping... For all the reasons that we just talked about, a number of other revenue streams for record labels and the rights holders associated with recorded music are growing precipitously. A lot of that is licensing. So, you know, terrestrial radio, for instance, AMFM radio in the US, does not pay royalties to record labels and, and artists. But digital radio, webcasting, and, and satellite radio do because of a 1998 law called the DMCA. So now, there are billions of dollars each year generated by performance royalties for recordings on the internet that did not exist as a revenue stream in the year 2000. There's also licensing for video games and commercials. Synchronization rights, as they're called, have grown by hundreds of percent during that time. The structure of the relationship between labor and capital has also changed. So now 
a lot of record labels during the last 10-15 years have experimented with different versions of what is broadly known as 360 deals. But basically what it means is they're not merely making money from recordings, they're making money from participating in several different aspects of the artist's revenue stream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is mer merchandising, live, live performance, exactly. synchronization. Right. And, and all three of those revenue streams have grown. So the live performance market in the U.S. grew by hundreds of percent from the 1990s to the 20-teens, from under 10 billion to over 20 billion. So, and record labels are getting a part of that as well. So there are all these new revenue streams that are coming into record labels' coffers. Oh, and by the way, they're suing companies left and right for copyright infringement, some often successfully, and collecting hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, on behalf of their artists from these companies, which they're not distributing to the artists. So that's another kind of underappreciated dimension of this, is that the percentage of revenues that are redistributed to creators by the labels and publishers drops precipitously during this period. They're spending, they're spending less money. They have lower cost bases because they're not doing as much manufacturing and distribution. They have, they have higher ancillary incomes because of all these new revenue streams. And they're paying out a lower percentage of those ancillary incomes to the recording artists than they did for their traditional business. So let's let's pivot into shoulds a little bit with the la essentially the last question. What do you hope the future looks like in this area, and what do you sort of predict the future looks like in the next five to ten years? I think that we're in a period right now of increasing media balkanization. We had this we had this nice internecine period uh, starting in around 2011, where services like Spotify and Netflix demonstrated the value of a kind of one-stop shop subscription uh, business for copyrighted works. And th I think that lowered a lot of uh, demand, um, at least among people with, with means, uh, who constitute the majority of the market for obvious reasons, for, um, for unlicensed distribution, right? Because, you know, I, like, you know, most sane people who have like some money in the bank are perfectly willing to pay five or 10 bucks a month to listen to all the music they would ever want to hear or to pay five or 10 bucks a month to watch all the movies and TV shows you'd ever want to yeah, watch. And in the Australian context, the argument is always that we would, we would pay for, for Game of Thrones if it was released at the same time as, as it is in the US market. But given, given that we have to wait three months. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and I've research backs that up, uh, as you know. Um, so, the problem is that we are now entering an era, we're exiting that era of like, you know, the, the, um, the Accord because the Spotify's and the Netflix's of the world are getting too powerful. For one thing, they're starting to vertically integrate and create their own content, which is threatening to the powers that be. But for another thing, now that they've done the hard work of training consumers to adopt this new business model, um, you know, the, uh, the content creators also want to vertically integrate and, and cut the middlemen out of the equation. And so now you see the splintering where like, you know, CBS All Access or, or Disney or like, you know, each, each content provider wants consumers to pay their like a separate five or $10 a month to them just for their content. So the more that that happens, the more content gets uh, geo-blocked and windowed and um, segregated and balkanized and the, the, basically the more times you have to ask consumers to log into a different service and pay a different master just to get access to what to them is essentially an undifferentiated mass of content. Like who thinks about what studio or record label made a, made a show or a song? Like you just, you like movies and you like music and you just want to watch them and listen to them. Anyway, the more balkanized the media market gets, I think the more incentive consumers will have to, to look to, you know, unlicensed aggregators uh, as one-stop shops, the way that they did 15 years ago before this infrastructure emerged, right? So I, I think we're going to see a growth in unlicensed distribution. Now, there are countervailing factors, right? We see the 
the rise of like the copyright directive in Article 13 in, in the EU. We see bans on VPNs and attempts to engineer backdoors into, uh, into encryption. So this time around, the media industries are a lot savvier and they're attempting to use a combination of market pressure and political pressure to forestall consumers from, from developing new methods of, of distributing to one another. You know, even like today, there's an article, they're going after stream rippers in, in, uh, in Australia, right? I think they just came, like, I think the government just came down on the ISPs and were basically like, you have to, like, yes. yep. right? Like today, right? So that's part of that process. They, they see what's coming. They have smart people working at the companies who understand how, how consumers interact via the internet and they want to make it fundamentally impossible. The problem is that you can't do that without also squelching free speech, privacy, the, the right to peaceably assemble. Uh, and in, in, you know, in some regions, including Australia and the US and the EU, that flies in the face of constitutional principles. And so it's going to be, uh, there's, there are going to be some legal battles. So what I see for the, for the next few years is increasing greediness leading to increasingly short-sighted business models on the content provider side, um, probably a lot of um, mergers and acquisitions and closures on the middlemen side uh, with just a handful of aggregators left standing. And I think we will see a kind of cat and mouse game between regulators, technologists, and consumers. That's very interesting. Well, I'll, I'll come back to you in, in, in five to 10 years and, and see how that went. Um, where can people follow your work? What's the best way to, um, to see what you're up to on the internet? I've got it all, uh, the books, the articles, the music on sinreich.com.